Our scripture reading this morning comes from Zechariah, the first chapter, beginning at the seventh verse. Hear the word of God. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. We have heard this word of God as it has been read. Let's ask God's blessing upon this word. Will you pray with me? O Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your law that your spirit would both convict us of the truth of these words and empower us to believe and do these words. And would you help me to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And all these things we pray in His name. Amen. Please be seated. My wife is a fifth grade school teacher. And a whole host of things could follow that statement. But I'm reminded of so many things that were true when I was a child. And if you are a child, you will also identify this. When you have a dispute with another child, and you were in the right, but they were in the wrong, and they provoked the trouble, you know, it's too bad that the referee is not present when the offense is committed. And when the referee comes on being a school teacher or a parent, a little bit after the fact, they, they instruct the two parties, the two parties in conflict, to, to stop arguing. And, uh, and then the, the bereaved party, the innocent party, if there ever is one, says, but what about, and then the offense is repeated. And as you parents have learned to say, you worry about you, I'll take care of so-and-so. Well, how often did that help you as a child? Just to be told, you worry about you, and I'll take care of justice later. Uh, it 
uh, may just be an excuse to kick the can down the road. It may just be a way of saying, just be quiet and don't bother me. Uh, But it often is of little comfort. Well, in certain respects, this is where Israel finds itself having been brought back from exile... But the temple building has stalled. The, the city wall which protected them has not been rebuilt. The nations which had uh, assaulted them are at ease. And God's people might be wondering, but what about? And an answer from God that just simply says, you worry about you would be insufficient. Because at the heart of things, and in our heart of hearts, whether it's an interpersonal situation or whether it's when we observe societal injustices, we want to know that God will do right. And God answers us elsewhere in His Word to say, Will not the Lord of the earth do right? But for God's people living between promise and reality, we need a greater assurance than just simply worry about yourselves. We need confidence that God will bring about right. And so these words from Zechariah's first of seven night visions is a word to us in those very circumstances. When we live between promise and reality, to keep on walking by faith, to keep on following God, to keep on doing the right thing, we have to trust that God will do right. And that word to God's people comes to us in this vision. Uh, Perhaps a bit of an orientation to this vision might help. Night visions are not common things, at least uh, 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 not common in most of our experiences. So let's take a moment just to understand exactly what's happening. Uh, Zechariah the prophet, whose name means God remembers, has the first of what we will see eventually as seven night visions. And he sees a man riding on a red horse. And uh, we are told that he is standing among the myrtle trees. My translation, our translation said, in the glen. That's an interesting word here. It's a word which actually everywhere else in the Bible is translated as the deep. You know, there are deep waters in two respects in Scripture. There's the the pre-creation Sea, which is unformed by God, but that's not this word here. This is the word deep, which signifies those those waters of trouble, those waters of judgment, uh, such as the waters of the Red Sea when God parted them and Israel passed through. Uh, That's the kind of uh, image that's being painted here. While uh, this man on a red horse may be standing in a glen or in a veil, it actually, by the use of this word here, uh, puts him in the position in the midst of, of the judgment waters. And yet, he is speaking from within those judgment waters. He is speaking from within that place where God's people experienced travail, testing, even God's chastisement. But more than that, the punishment, the abuse of the nations. And behind this man on a red horse, there are others. And the word red sorrel, which means chestnut for you uh, horse fans, it's uh, not as red as red, but not as brown as brown. A red, a chestnut, and a white horse, the the words here for those colors are are actually in the plural, meaning there are groups of horsemen uh, 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 astride these uh, 
mounted on these different horses, and we'll eventually learn that they bring a report. You see, uh, what, the, what the prophet is seeing here is a group of reconnaissance patrols, horsemen who have gone out in uh, the battlefield, as it were, to bring a report back on what the state of affairs is. And Zechariah asks uh, the interpreting angel, just as in the book of Revelation, there is there's an angel often standing with John. So here in Zechariah, there's, a, there's an interpreting angel to help the prophet make sense of what the vision means. And uh, the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. Uh, by the way, there's a, sometimes a morbid fascination with dreams and and visions, uh, you find it in all cultures, in all places, in all times. I, I knew a young man uh, not too many years ago who would get upset when I, when I was teaching the Bible and it conflicted with his dreams because his dreams were his reality, uh, because he believed God spoke through dreams. But notice, biblically speaking, God doesn't give dreams without interpreting them. Just like events never happen without God giving their meaning. So ultimately, what is the most clarifying thing that that we can have in life? It is not a dream or not trying to look at the newspaper and figure out what events on the front page mean, but it is the word which God gives us to tell us what those things mean. The interpretation of what's going on in the world is God's word not those events, not such things as dreams. And, and so uh, in verse 10, we're told the man that was standing among the myrtle trees answered, this is the man on the red horse. These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. You know, God is often portrayed as a mighty warrior. Uh, he, is, uh, he is the one who leads the hosts of heaven in battle. And um, this is one of his agents. And he has sent uh, these horsemen throughout the earth. And very soon we're going to learn a little bit more of the identity of this man on the red horse. He is no less than the angel of the Lord, as verse 12 will make plain. And you can see that because the man on the red horse is the one who commands all the other reconnaissance parties. He is their authority. And the, the one who had sent the patrol throughout the earth, and perhaps you have three groups of horsemen, and he being a fourth, perhaps you have the four points of the compass, that is, searching out through all the earth, such as the four horsemen of Revelation. Nevertheless, what he reports is what they, are, what they told him in verse 11, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now, you might think, well, this is a very good thing. Everything's quiet. Well, parents, when things are too quiet at home, it's not necessarily a good thing, is it? And it's not a good thing here. Because he goes on, we see that the angel of the Lord then says to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, that is, Lord of the heavenly hosts, Lord of the heavenly armies, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seven years? 
You see, the fact that the world is at rest is not a good thing. God's people, as we learned last week, God's people had broken covenant with God. They had worshipped idols. They had committed rampant injustice against the poor and the weak among them. They had become like the nations rather than God's special treasure, His peculiar people, His kingdom of priests. And so God brought the curses of the covenant upon them which sent them into exile for 70 years. But, but the 70 years are over. We're on the brink of the end of that period of God administering His judgment upon His people through pagan kings and pagan nations. But it wasn't just that they had acted as God's instruments, because in verse 15 we learned that God was exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. The nations which had taken the northern kingdom of Israel and then eventually the southern kingdom of Israel into captivity, Assyria and Babylon, had abused. They had gone beyond God's purposes. They had enslaved and humiliated and broken down the will of God's people. And so now in this land, this gray world between promise and reality, the people of God are wondering, well, what about them? And here in this first vision, we find God's answer. The angel of the Lord intercedes for God's people. And he says, how long, O Lord, will you not have mercy upon Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? And we see in verse 11 that the Lord in heaven answers. He answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And the angel then said to Zechariah the prophet in verse 14, cry out, thus says the Lord, let the world know what God's answer is. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. God, elsewhere in Scripture, describes His Old Testament covenant people as the apple of His eye. The prophet Ezekiel had described God's covenant people as a waistband, as an ornament, as something that adorned God. God's people were precious to God. And one thing they need to learn, to be reminded of, to believe, is that in the shadow lands between promise and reality, God has not changed toward them. He says he is angry with the nations in verse 15. And in verse 16, he repeats the promise that the prophets had made before exile had come. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy my house shall be built in it. The temple building that had begun in the, in the return from exile, but which had stalled because of opposition from Israel's surrounding enemies, God says that temple building will be completed. The book of Haggai is the completion of that story. God would again to return As he had departed, he would return to the promised land. And as Ezekiel had saw the glory depart from the temple, and the temple being subjected to the hands of Israel's enemies, God would rebuild his house, and he would do what he had said in the opening verses of this prophecy, return to me and I will return to you. God promised 
he would dwell among his people, and they would be his people, and he would dwell in their midst. And he has not abandoned that promise. Declares the Lord of hosts, verse 16, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Next week, we're going to look at architect 911 in the next vision. When you have an emergency, you usually don't call an architect. You might call a fireman, in some cases a plumber, but you wouldn't call an architect, but God sends an architect. We'll look at that next week. The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So as God's people live in that shadow land between promise and reality, God first addresses the world situation. He first addresses the world situation to say, Don't worry, I have it in hand, and justice will be done. And having some understanding now of what this vision entails, let's take away from it what God would have us to take away from it this morning. First of all, we need to recall and remember the distressing report. That all is not well just because things are quiet. All is not well, justice is not done, just because things are at peace. And I think this speaks to us in a, in a tumultuous world. You know, we look around us and we, we see that there, justice is hard to find. Even good civil justice in countries that are ruled by law, their justice is only rough, approximate. You know, the kind of justice that God promises uh, is far from even the most uh, just of nations. Whether you look uh, across the world in global news, whether you look here at home, uh, whether you even look in your own personal relationships, perhaps uh, some great offense has been committed against you either recently or perhaps a long time in your past. And you say, God, it's not right. And I want to get over it. I want to get over that thing that was said to me, that thing that was done to me. I want to get over how some people are not treated well in our culture. Uh, You might even be attuned to how increasingly Christians are feeling marginalized in our country. There's great fear whether or not Christian colleges can continue to exist if they don't adapt and adopt to changing mores that go with things like sexuality and marriage. Uh, People of faith are uh, more fearful oftentimes of speaking out in a university classroom. And uh, and justice seems a long way off. And when, 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 when we are feeling frustrated or hopeless or angry at the way things are, Uh, God calls to our attention that it is in the center of His attention. He is concerned with justice. He commands us to be just people, to be just with one another, and to foster and promote justice in the world. But uh, as Paul said in Romans, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You see, often uh, we as Christians look the least best 
when we take things in hand, because like Peter, we find that instead of taking up the cross and following Jesus, we have taken up the sword and cut off someone's ear. And it's a constant struggle of the Christian life as we wait, as we wait for God to do what God will do. We find constantly the temptation to put down the cross and pick up the sword. Whether it's the sword of uh, political power or the, the sword of, of, uh, of some uh, distorted idea of justice or the sword even of violence, God says he has his eye on the ball. And he has not overlooked the injustice in the world. And in fact, under the gospel, he reminds us that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. I can't do it in a monologue situation. It takes a dialogue to do this, but if you, you, can, you can try this on a friend or family member. You can ask the person, what is the key to good humor? And before they have a chance to answer, you say, timing. And then you have to wait until they finish, and then you say, timing. You see, timing is everything. Uh, But timing is also critical when it comes to the nations at ease. Because Peter, in his second letter, said, you know, there are are people who, like in the days of Noah, think that the world is going to go on just like it is. They live under uh, the, uh, the cynicism of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun. Um, there, there's no point in trying. Nothing's fair. And so we just work on that plane. But God, God, as Peter reminded the people of God, scattered throughout the nations, he reminded that God is not slow about his promises but that his slowness is so that he might bring to repentance all those for whom Christ died. See, God had a plan back in the days of Zechariah. He wasn't just going to punish the nations. He would do that. But he would also, from the nations, draw to himself people that would become part of his covenant people. You see, when our timing gets ahead of God's timing, we find enemies in the world among those for whom Christ has died. And it is the patient forbearance of God's people that speak of our greater hope. So in the midst of a distressing report, God reminds us that he, His eye is on the ball, that He will deal with things in His time. The second thing that we can take away from this from this vision of Zechariah, is a reassuring promise. Because you see, God said in gracious and comforting words, as verse 13 described them, that He is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. The place where He had chosen for His name to dwell, He is zealous for it. And not only that, He says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built. The things that we're hoping for God to do, Zechariah said, God is doing them because he remains kindly disposed toward us. It makes all the difference in the world to be able to say in your heart, God is kindly disposed toward me. 
doesn't, doesn't mean He approves of everything I do. But to know that we are objects of His favor rather than His wrath. This is the gospel, isn't it? That while we were far off, we've been brought near. That while we were in, in, yet enemies, Christ died for us. God would rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but as we're going to see in the, the third night vision, that temple wasn't big enough. And what God has continued to do from the days of Zechariah, in which He achieved magnificently in Christ Himself, was to build a temple that could, that could hold the whole world. When Jesus uh, spoke of uh, Herod's temple, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. What they didn't understand is that he was speaking of himself, that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, would be a temple in which the nations would gather by the Spirit to create a living stone temple of a holy priesthood. God's little beginning in the days of Haggai would would reach their earthly reality in the sending and the raising of His Son and the gathering to Himself of a church in the Spirit. And He did return to Jerusalem. He returned in the person of Christ. And particularly in Luke's Gospel, you can see the Lord coming into His temple. But He raised, R-A-Z-E-D, that stone temple, because in Christ being raised, R-A-I-S-E-D, a temple for the nations has been built. Because not only will Christ come again in judgment to bring justice, but He came first in mercy to gather a people to Himself. Uh, we are citizens of Zion. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, that Christ entered in, He finished the race, Hebrews 12, 1, but down in verse 22 of Hebrews 12, it says, we have come to Zion, to the city of the living God. And that's why all these hymns that we sing from the Psalms take Zion and apply them to the church of Jesus Christ. Because we are citizens of the Jerusalem which is above, Paul says in Galatians. So that God has returned. His glory has come into a new temple in and through Jesus Christ. So that what Zechariah was reassured of in this reassuring promise, we already see in reality. So a distressing report which God acknowledges He is alerted to, a reassuring promise that God is returning to His people and will dwell among us as He has and will. And finally, thirdly, we learn from this night vision of Zechariah that faith must be informed by patience. Faith must be informed by patience. God did not gather His people together, arm them and send them to attack Babylon or Assyria or Egypt or Syria or any of the nations which had abused His people. He tells them to build, walk by faith, believe my word, cling to my promises, 
And in that way, you will be able to persevere in the shadow land between promise and reality. A pastor friend of mine who's a wise father, I remember him telling me uh, whenever he went on vacation with his uh, children, and they were many, uh, when uh, they were about 30 minutes down the road, the children would begin to ask from the back seat, what? Are we there yet? How much longer? And so every time they asked him, he would say, oh, about another five or ten minutes. And he would say that the whole eight-hour, five-hour, two-day trip. Five or ten minutes. And, um, of course, his children soon figured out that was just because they were asking a question that they shouldn't be asking. They were being annoying. But, you know, there's a question asked here in this text that is found in many places in Scripture. And... um, uh, one of the most common places it is found is in the Psalms. And is the question, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And if you have not asked that question of God at times, you have lived an unusually comfortable life, or else you are completely unaware of what's going on around you. How long? Oh, Lord. You know, that's one of the great tests of faith, isn't it? To ask that question, how long, oh, Lord? And to be able to live with the agony that sometimes informs that question, what, 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 what is necessary to be able to continue to put one foot in the front of the other, to set goals in life, to have aspirations, to think of the future, to rebuild as we talked about last week. It is to know that God has his eye on the ball, that his timing is his own wise and unfathomable and yet glorious timing, and that he has not forgotten to be gracious, that he has given us a reassuring promise. Are we there yet? We're almost there. And for 20 centuries since the resurrection, the church has been called to live, and each individual Christian has been called to live, believing that we're almost there. The imminent return of Christ, coming once for salvation, coming again for judgment, to live not in the shadow land between promise and reality, but because of what God has already done in Christ, to live in full possession of the promises, even though we don't see the world around us the way we expect it to be one day, yet nevertheless God is at work keeping His promises, gathering to Himself a new Israel, made up of the remnant of those who've been brought back and grafting into that remnant, strange vines like you and me, Gentiles from among the nations. And so as we do, we're able to live with patience. We're able to keep the commands of the Lord. You know, this is the essence of Psalm 1. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
And he meditates on it day and night. That is, walking by faith means we know, we meditate upon, and we walk in God's ways. How can we do that? The Psalm 1 tells us. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff which are blown away. God will deal with those who are estranged from him. But he is dealing with them in two different ways. For some, his son has shed his blood so that they might be reconciled to him. And as we walk by faith, we are able to be witnesses of his surpassing grace, his unfathomable mercy, his divine presence in the gift of the Spirit given to his church. A distressing report, a reassuring promise, and faith that is informed by patience. Uh, Perhaps a little known, sorry to bring up the subject of hurricanes again, but it was almost, it was this month, it was uh, 90 years ago, there was a hurricane that came ashore in Miami, became known as the Great Miami Hurricane. And Miami at that time was one of the most rapidly growing cities in the country. There was a storm surge that was 10 feet high. It came across Miami Beach and Biscayne Bay and several blocks up into downtown Miami. And uh, the loss of property at that time would set Miami back decades in its development. Uh, Before the days when there were hurricane hunting airplanes and satellite imagery, Uh, No warnings were issued even as soon as 24 hours before landfall. And there were 372 deaths in that hurricane. But the great majority of those deaths were not those who suffered under the initial impact of the storm, but there were the ones who came out during the eye of the hurricane when the sky was clear and it seemed like the storm was over. It was the great majority of those who were caught not watching for the rest of the storm, those who perished. We should not mistake blue sky as a sign that everything is right with the world. That even though the nations are at rest, even though justice is often hard to find, even though our hope sometimes flags when we expect things to be set right now, God says another storm is coming. Another storm in which He will throw down unjust powers, that He will lift up the oppressed, He will set All things right and every tear will be wiped away. But for those for whom the storm has spent its strength on Christ the Son, in the wrath of God poured out upon the Son on the cross, when He said, it is finished, there is blue sky. We live not just in a not yet, but we live in a now of God's promises, His reassurance, so that you can keep putting one foot in front of the other, walking by faith, keeping God's commands, because he hears the prayers of the angel of the Lord to answer how long. Let's pray.
You have heard the cry of our hearts, Lord, at different times. How long, O Lord? Help us first and foremost to take shelter in the Son who died for us and rose again for our life so that we now know that there is no condemnation if we are in Him. Make us uh, watchful. Uh, Lead us to repentance for the times where we have been guilty of uh, being like the nations which are at ease, ignoring your promises and treating others as if they exist for ourselves. But also give us confidence that as we labor and languish under the fallen world, that you have remembered your promises, that you have kept them in your Son, and you will keep them openly before every eye, so that every knee will bow to Jesus as Lord when he comes again. Amen.